Greetings and welcome to Dead for Filth. I'm your host, Michael Verratti, and this is the podcast for all things queer horror and beyond. On this week's episode, I'm excited to have a guest whose passion for movies transformed him into one of the industry's most outspoken professional critics. The creator of the popular blog, The Binge, his analysis of film eventually led to the creation of the site's successful podcast spinoff, The Binge Movie Podcast. A successful writer and journalist, his byline has appeared in many prominent publications, and he's a member of the San Francisco Film Critics Circle. He also has become a fixture in the Bay Area's performance underground, working with the likes of Peaches Christ, with whom he recently made his stage debut. Please welcome writer-critic and queer sensation, Jason Leroy. Oh my God, thank you. That was not fudged at all. I believe it all. Thank I would you. never write anything that I didn't think was true. You know, it's true. It's all perception, really. That's where reality resides. That's exactly <laughs> it. Uh, Jason, I'm so excited to have you here today, uh, especially because at some point we can reveal that we have uh, similar origin stories. We sure do. But before we do that, uh, why don't we just start the show the same way I start every show with the same first question I ask every guest, and it is simply this. Why horror? And you can interpret that however you want. Why does horror appeal to you, or why do you think audiences are drawn to the genre, but why horror? Well, I would say the root for me, personally, is the fact that when I was probably six and seven years old, I had Beetlejuice put on in front of me a number of times. And, uh, and I know Beetlejuice is not strictly horror. I guess we would think of it as a horror comedy. Right. And, uh, but Beetlejuice was a really, really formative film for me. Uh, and I think it's also the reason why, to this day, I prefer my horror with a dash of comedy. Uh, I prefer all things with a dash of comedy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if I'm going to read something, it should be funny. I'm just kidding. I don't read. Um, <laughs> sex should be hilarious. Uh, so I, I prefer things to be funny. And so I think I got that through Beetlejuice. And then maybe four or five years later, I saw Death Becomes Her in theaters. And that is my, you know, another horror comedy route as well as just my gay route overall, I would say. So I would say it started with Beetlejuice and then sort of on through Death Becomes Her. And then when I was an emo teenager, it was all about Scream, which took the horror comedy and gave it such a massive dose of like Greek level drama. Right. And at that point, the drama is what took over for me. Uh, You know, to me, like the character of Sidney Prescott is is just such an amazing, tragic figure. Uh, which they, of course, commented on in Scream 2 when she quite literally starred in, like, a Greek production at, like, the college theater program that she was in. Right. Meanwhile, uh, a film adaptation of her life starring Tori Spelling is out in the world. There is that. I did love the high-low of, like, them being like, here's this low-brow thing, uh, which is the Tori Spelling movie. And meanwhile, Sydney's off doing high-brow theater at her, like, fancy college where she's about to get everybody killed again. Sydney's uh, career trajectory over the course of the Scream movies always deeply fascinates me because... <laughs> She is studying high Shakespeare in Scream 2. Mm-hmm. She somehow has wandered into Hollywood yes. in Scream 3. And, and by the time uh, the fourth film comes out, she's... She's a memoirist. Yes. I mean, what a life. Truly. Uh, and, you know, I think that she doesn't get enough credit for defining the modern woman. <laughs> Sydney Prescott, defining the modern woman. How you say all your friends have to die. <laughs> right, by being the lone surviving woman. She becomes, by you know, necessity, the definition of the modern woman. Uh, you know what? I'm here for that. I'll also, I think what th- that leads into also is the kind of general discussion of why so many of us are drawn to the idea of the final girl. Because uh, final girls so frequently represent an otherness of their own in horror. And Sydney was sort of the redefinition of a final girl. Because in the past, someone like Laurie Strode in Halloween, even though she's got those cool friends, she doesn't feel cool. She's not the popular girl. She wishes she could be like PJ Souls and Nancy Loomis and like be like sexy and like it's sexual um, or the girls in Friday the 13th where you know uh, they're tomboys and camping and like everyone else is the popular pretty girl not that they're not pretty but you know what I mean and uh, Sydney's interesting because Sydney is kind of part kind of the popular girl mm, mm-hmm. 
right. and she has otherness thrust upon her. Right. I feel like her otherness is kind of just part of Nev Campbell's general vibe. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's what Nev brings to the character because yeah, she's she has you know hot boyfriend and her friends seem like they're popular, fun, easygoing people. Uh, but you know, Nev just has that vulnerable, wounded, whispery call you know quality to her. Right. Um, you know, which is of course what made her the perfect person to play uh, Dwayne Johnson's wife uh, in that movie that came out last year. Well, what movie was that? That was um, what the fuck's it called? It's the one about. I'm like, I think the name is quite literally something like Building. Uh, it's the oh, one skyscraper. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> the hilarious thing is that movie is watching Dwayne Johnson reverse engineer his performance so that he would seem like the kind of person who would be married to Nev Campbell. Uh, my favorite thing before we get back on track about <laughs> Nev Campbell that no one ever seems to talk about, though Robert Altman made an entire movie about, is that she's a, a classically trained ballet dancer. Yes, that's true. That's true. Uh, you know, and she brought that to bear in Scream too. I would say. Yes. Just the movements, you know, whenever she's having that scene where she's doing the rehearsal and then she starts to see, like, the killer jumping out of her from all, like, the Greek chorus around her. That movement, that was classical shit. That was. Although I like to equate that scene with the uh, dance warm-up scene in Showgirls. To me, mm. there's a power mix to be made right there. I think so, too. I think so, too. Uh, my other favorite thing about that whole thing is on the commentary track of the first Scream when Wes Craven points out that you sh- basically he's like, here's a fun drinking game idea. Every time that Nev touches her hair, have a shot. And he was like, he hate and, she, and he was like, she hates that I point this out to her. And so I point it out to her a lot. Well, it also is a nightmare for an editor, I imagine. Yeah. yeah. So that's like, from a filmmaking perspective, I can see why he would obsess about it because then you have to match that shot over and over and over again. Uh, so yes, what I like, what you, uh, when you're describing your, your personal investment in the world of horror, you look at things like Beetlejuice and mm-hmm. Death Becomes Her and sort of that, uh, intersection of comedy and horror and uh, we talk on the show a lot about how horror and comedy tend to have a kinship because it's all about beats if something is one beat off it can become terrifying Mm. or it can become very funny Mm -hmm. and uh, I think that for that reason comedy and horror uh, tend to walk very closely together Uh, especially when you look at something like death becomes her but what's interesting is you also mention what drew you in is the drama of yeah. Scream. And I'm fascinated by that because I also think from the perspective of queer intersection with genre, drama plays a lot into, I think, maybe what queer audiences are drawn to. Because mm-hmm. I think the drama in question is usually that heightened sense mm-hmm. of what draws us to a drag queen right. or whatever. And in that way, I think that Death Becomes Her is also very dramatic, too, but you maybe weren't thinking about it at the time. Right. Yeah, no, I would agree. I mean, I think that for whatever reason, we all know that there's a long history of queer men in particular reacting very strongly in favor of dramatic women in film. Right. Um, and uh, and so I think and that's part of what, you know, appeals to us about a final girl um, and about, you know, sort of the generally female focused of horror, uh, female focused quality of horror in general. Um, and Death Becomes Her, I mean, drama doesn't get any more heightened than whenever uh, Helen and Madeline have the shovel fight right. while screaming about their past grievances with each other and really just fucking hashing it out, uh, you know, digging up all like it's a full on Real Housewives fight. Like it's a it's like a Real Housewives confrontation, uh, like caught on film in which they just <laughs> both happen to be dead, which many housewives could be like we wouldn't know. I know. I mean, I, I have some thoughts and theories. Yeah. Uh, one thing I always like to point about uh, point out about Death Becomes Her when it comes up, and I don't know that I've actually mentioned on the show before, uh, that's a little known fact, is that script was originally intended to be a Tales from the Crypt movie. I did not know that. And when you think of the context of the film, mm. it actually makes sense. Because it has that kind of sick joke quality to it. It has like a sick joke punchline that definitely yeah. would play into Tales from the Crypt. But I also feel like it's the gayest possible version of Tales from the Crypt. Yes. Which is interesting because Tales from the Crypt, in my mind, is actually a pretty like sort of queer show anyway because it's yeah. heightened colors it's a horror show where everything's candy colored as opposed to hiding in the dark um one thing that you actually brought up that i intended to talk to you today and i even mentioned before we went on the air there was a specific topic that i wanted to talk with you about because i knew that you would have some interesting insight on it and you just organically brought it up anyway mm-hmm. is the idea of the draw of 
gay men to actresses. Like, right. I know that Twitter has now dubbed it as, like, I'm not homosexual, I'm uh, actresexual. Yeah. Uh, but it is sort of interesting, you know, this this uh, ongoing dialogue to, and that happens with our pop stars as well, where when people are organizing Pride events, uh, there's, you know, suddenly the discussion, why, are, why do we keep booking these women when we're not booking LGBTQIA artists? Right. Uh, but from a f- cinematic standpoint, what is the actress draw? Why why do we love our actresses so much? Do you think? Because I feel like this is something you've thought about. Mm. Uh, I mean, thinking about taking it to Sydney for a moment, I know. I mean, much has been written about the subject that like gay men are drawn to strong female characters because of the ways that they embody uh, sort of facing adversity and conflict and. Uh, and overcoming it, you know, survivors. You know, we love Cher because she's a survivor, right. as as Charlotte's straight gay uh, boyfriend in Sex in the City said just before they had sex. Uh, <laughs> she's such a survivor. Uh, so I think that you know we see in them. I mean, there's the beauty, there's the glamour. Uh, I think we see a resilience. We see because you know, and and this is something I'm curious if it will be an ongoing thing. The more normative that being an out gay man in America becomes, right? Because for for many decades, of course, it was uh, something that we had to do in private. You know, we had to struggle with this, uh, you know, really intense adversity and rejection from culture at large, and live in the shadows, and then just like you know, just feel ourselves watching Judy Garland belting the man that got away, right? Um, and just sort of just channel all of our sadness into that. Um, or all of our anger, or whatever it might be. So, uh, I mean, for me, personally, it's all about Julianne Moore. Um, she's my all-time number one. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I, I recently did a storytelling show where I talked about, like, what is it about Julianne Moore for me? Because, uh, like, the theme of the show was, like, pick your favorite person, your favorite whatever, pop culture, whatever, and then just do a thing about, like, why they're your favorite. Right. And so I had to really ask myself, what is it about Julianne Moore that I've always been so drawn to? This goes back for me about, like, probably to Boogie Nights in 97. Like, I'd seen her in other things before that, but that was whenever I was first, like, holy shit. Right. Uh, so, and what it came down to for me, what I realized is that, I don't know if you know this about me, but, like, I cannot cry Oh, I like can't cry. I don't cry. I never cry. It's not some sort of macho point of pride for me. It's something I actually feel very insecure about. I wish I could cry. Um, And I experience such crying catharsis watching Julianne cry because she, of course, is the world's arguably most famous and celebrated crier. Yes. Uh, Like she cries the tears that I cannot. Uh, And it's like she's like a surrogate. She's like a crying surrogate for me. Um, And so and I think that, you know, in some way, there is something to that with the way that gay men feel this connection to women emoting beautifully on screen. There is this cathartic connection. Um, and we wish we only wish we could look as beautiful yes. uh, when we're suffering with our you know shitty pain uh, as they do uh, on the on the silver screen. So so I think that's part of it. Uh, and I think there's also the humor aspect. Going back to kind of where I started, obviously humor is a coping mechanism, right? And uh, and so I think that's why we also have always loved like a Betty Davis uh, who comes back with a quip in the face of bullshit. Right. Uh, so uh, and and that's something that, you know, I think we all learn like as a coping mechanism. So uh, so if you can have like a, you know, a beautiful actress who, you know, cries one second, gives you a quip the next, then you're just like, well, this is all I need. Like this is this is covering my bases. Well, and it's true. And I think that. Uh especially with regard to genre cinema and I love that you use Sydney as the starting block to have that whole discussion is uh, I've talked with other people in the past about the draw to final girls and inherent in everything you just said that is there mm-hmm. not to mention uh, tenfold because a, a final girl is a survivor right and oftentimes uh, the way they're written especially uh, you know under the pen of such people like Kevin Williamson they are quippy so it's I think that we can project uh, as gay men in the world this person is overcoming great adversity and it's kind of being fabulous in the process and isn't that what we all want? Mm-hmm. And in an era where there was no representation, if you were like a little queer kid watching movies, you gravitated towards those people. And if you're a little queer kid who's watching horror movies, of course, it's going to be Nancy and Nightmare or Alice and Friday the 13th or, you know, Sidney Prescott. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
I just find it so interesting. And I like I still hear the discussion today. You know, I know a group of people this week who flocked to go see Greta right. because of Isabelle Huppert. Although someone had the audacity to say to me, I guess that Isabelle Huppert is now going to be a horror icon. I was like, excuse me? <laughs> She's been making genre films for years. What was she doing with Michael Haneke in right. Germany for the last 20 years? Does they see the piano teacher? She stabs herself with a steak knife. Right, in the chest. Right. I mean, I don't know how your piano lessons went, but not mine. No, no, ma'am. Yeah. I mean, it is, It is though... Those were not B-movies, though. So no, it, they is, were not, yeah. it is remarkable to see her make a genre B-movie like Greta. I Fair. saw somebody quip that, like, you know, her greatest acting challenge is acting like Chloe Grace Moretz is interesting. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sad <Yeah>. face. <laughs> uh, so let's take it back to your origin story. We talked about why horror for you and the, the gateway being, of course, comedy and the intermingling of horror and comedy. But you've always had a general interest in movies. Yeah. So uh, growing up, I'm assuming that you were always drawn to cinema and to film. Did you always hope that you would be involved in either the discussion or dissection or the industry in some way? And if not, what was the pivot point? Well, I think so. The The real root for me was in um, in 1992, my mother got a subscription to Entertainment Weekly um, mm-hmm. as a method of uh, procuring those like double disc best of the 70s disco compilations they were then incentivizing their magazine with. Right. Um, so she wanted those CDs that she was going to get them come hell or high water. And so she got this magazine. And uh, and so it started to come in like January 92. Um, it was I remember I think the first cover that we got was Nick Nolte for Prince of Tides. Uh, and it was like an Oscar issue. It was like, okay, you were ramping up the Prince of Tides Oscar campaign. Meanwhile, like, I'm deeply offended. I'm like, they did a Prince of Tides <laughs> cover with Nick Nolte only? I know. And they Stress wonder him. and they wonder why Barbara wasn't nominated for Best Director that year. <laughs> that was it. That's where it <laughs> that's, begins. That's exactly where it started. It was because Entertainment Weekly did her dirty right off the bat. <laughs> so, uh, and so, yeah, so I just kind of started, I was 10 years old at the time. Mm-hmm. And so I just started, you know, getting this magazine every week. And it changed everything about me. It shaped my little brain. Mm-hmm. And from that point forward, that was all I had the ability to retain mentally. Uh, that's it. Uh, that's all this no- fucking noodle is good for, is just retaining information about like pop culture and movies and TV and music and everything else. And, um, and so that became just like a weekly Bible for me. And, uh, and you know, read it every week from, you know, 10 to 18 and uh, and I think through that, that's just where all my interests start to develop. And uh, and, you know, from there, I just, you know, was learning like, OK, what movie should I be chasing down? You know, I, I grew up in a rural area south of Pittsburgh in Pennsylvania. And so we didn't really have like, you know, art house theaters. Um, our video stores didn't really have like indie movies. And so I was like scouring far and when this was, you know, pre-internet. Right. And so I'm like scouring far and wide to find these things. It, all, it just became like this endless series of holy grails that I was like hunting down all throughout my teen years. And um, and in terms of what I wanted to do, how I wanted to interact and interface with it, I guess it was just like a monkey see monkey do thing because I was just like, okay, well, I want to write about it. Right. I'm reading this writing about it. I want to do this. I want to also write about it. I want to write reviews. I want to do interviews. And, um, and so I think in 1995, so I guess just three years later, um, I started to write reviews for the youth section of our local newspaper, which was called the Observer Reporter. Um, I started to do, um, yeah, I started to write my like pretentious, obnoxious little thirteen-year-old reviews for this newspaper. Do you remember what your first review was? I do. Um, I believe the first, um, the first they were. It was on Sundays that the uh, Young Observer section was printed, and uh, the first time that I had reviews, and I believe I had two. Uh, I had nine months. And the bridges of Madison County. So wait, your first review was a Julianne Moore movie. Was a Julianne Moore movie. I love that. It's all. I don't know if I said anything about her in the review of the time, uh, because let's be honest, nine months. It's not about her. Uh, it is is one of the most thankless studio roles she's ever had. Uh, you know, and also the movie, of course, was 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 forever tainted by what happened with Hugh Grant. Uh, here in LA, uh, oh, yeah. just as that was uh, on its way out the door. That was the movie, huh? That I was the movie. About that. Yeah, the, the great uh, prostitute. Game. Yes. Yeah. 
uh, Divine Brown, right? Yeah, what a great name. When are we going to go, when do, we, when do we get that 90s tabloid story told? That's what I want. And especially I want like a really like empowering version of the story where it's not about Hugh Grant, it's about Divine Brown as like this, like this sex worker of color who's like out there suddenly being eclipsed by this like entitled white famous wealthy man who's you know dick she sucks and then suddenly she's infamous like we're we're revisiting every 90s tabloid story and turn them into these really thoughtful docuseries right now right so i want that one i want the divine brown one yeah it's wild because i mean i was sort of obsessed with court tv around the same time that you're reading entertainment weekly yeah and it, 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 this is before of course the the world of sensationalist internet so it felt like it was a half hour of sensationalism so it felt delicious mm-hmm. now i would never because it's all just too much and too gross yeah but i remember when the lorena bobbitt case happened Absolutely. or the Absolutely. long island lolita that was amy yeah. fisher and the three tv movies we got out of it i know i wonder if that's why we haven't had amy fisher revisited yet because there were so many tv movies about her at the time yeah or it's coming very more played her in one yeah and a Milano and another. That's right. There was a moment here uh, when the now disgraced Cinna family did a night uh, where they showed all three Amy Fisher TV movies, but intercut, where Ooh. they would have scenes from one that would lead into scenes from another. Oh, it was that's clever. One of the great uh, art house moments of Los Oof. Angeles cinema that I feel like more people should have talked about. That and their Sam Neill goes crazy triple feature uh, were two of my favorite moments of Los Angeles theater oh going. My God. But uh, yes, so Divine Brown, nine months, your first your first review. Yes. Uh, and yeah, and then I just kept doing that all through um, junior high and high school, just writing reviews of movies, concerts, TV shows, writing essays, whatever. Um, they would print whatever the fuck I wrote. So I'm like, great. And then off I went to Kent State University, which is where our stories overlap and intersect. Yes. And uh, and there eventually I started writing for our daily paper, the Daily Kent Stater, mm-hmm. and uh, and just yeah, just kept doing, kept writing the reviews and doing interviews and all that other shit. And uh, that was also the first time I got to enjoy the benefits of being on a press list, uh, which is an intoxicating thing that you can't give up easily once you've tasted it's a uh, sweet nectar. And uh, and then after I moved to San Francisco in 2005, after finishing Kent, um, eventually a few years after that, I. Just got right back into it, and now I do the podcast, which is uh, which is a lot easier than writing. Uh, well, yes. <laughs> uh, what I think is really awesome about this story is it was always your goal to write about movies, yeah. And now you have really taken that childhood love and made it your job. It's remarkable. Uh, I'm like, I said, I am remarkable. No, <laughs> uh, I, I'm, yeah, I, I, it's, it's, I, I, it's just you don't get to pick your passion you know like and you know i know that like big picture it's not you know brain surgery like it's you know it's 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 you know it can be a little trivial but for whatever reason it's just my thing right and um and i don't even like if i had to choose i don't think i would choose writing reviews to be like what i don't you know give back to the world um it's not (laughs) it's not that great um but it's just kind of the part of it that i've found myself doing over and over again and you know like i've often wondered like oh should i be like making films uh the way that you do and i'm just like i don't don't know if i have that in me yeah i was gonna ask with all of this love of movies right did you ever really stop to think do i also want to make them yes uh and i do have like i've i've i would like to try to actually write a proper screenplay i have i've had the same idea for like uh, like three years now that I kind of started to work on at one point. Uh, I went to this retreat center in Santa Cruz um, to try to like break ground on it. And it was a Catholic retreat center and there was no one else there except for the nuns. Mm-hmm. And so it was just me and nuns uh, in this like house by the sea uh, right. for like five days. And so I would just, like sit in my room and like just go through this creative dark night of the soul where I'm just like, I'm not a writer, I'm a fraud. And then just go and sit with the nuns and have lunch and just go back up to my room. I mean, uh, imposter syndrome, I think, is something every writer goes through, yeah. uh, except for Aaron Sorkin. And he except- could definitely you know, use a couple months of it. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> what was I watching something recently where they, were, like, the, they had like a joke title of an Aaron Sorkin thing? It was called like, shut up, lady, I have an idea. <laughs> uh, God. Um, so... Because of the nature of the show and because of how firmly invested in movies you became right away, I am curious, do you think that your kind of wholesale jumping into this world and the immersion into the pop culture and the embracing of it is in any way uh, connected to your queer identity or... Yeah, I mean, I feel like, uh, I mean, I think I was very lucky to have um, this natural interest in pop culture 
just because I was able to find queer representation there um, in a way that I did not have in my day-to-day life in Pennsylvania. Right. Uh, so, I mean, that those were my lifelines, like, especially pre-internet. I mean, this is something that, like, only, like, our generation, like, our age is, like, some of the very last right. that understand what it was like to be queer uh, before there was internet. Mm-hmm. And, um, and to not be able to just, like, go online and find your community. Like, you had to fucking forage far and wide to find just little nuggets of queerness right. in like films or TV shows or albums or whatever. Uh, and so I feel like that was really uh, reassuring to me. Like that was kind of most of my like warmest, fondest memories of my teen years are of like finding, you know, some movie, like I'm just going to throw this out there, threesome. Uh, <laughs> good one. Yeah. Uh, where you know I just like find you know it's like the whole cellular closet thing it's just finding those like trails of breadcrumbs um, that depict queerness through the years and um, and so I think that through becoming a pop culture obsessive I was able to immerse myself much more fully in uh, queer ideas and representation as as middling as it was at the time and uh, so yeah so I think that honestly that was a lifesaver for me being able to like find those things and look at those things it is interesting uh, you're right our generation was sort of the last that we really really if we heard a rumor about a movie Mm -hmm. it was a Herculean effort sometimes to try and track it down remember when I was in uh, junior high that's when I first had heard that shock treatment existed and Mm. it was this sort of like mythic film that was the sequel to Rocky Horror but of course nowhere I also was growing up in Western PA at the time there was nowhere there that had no had that movie uh or then even when I was in college uh the idea of driving over to Hollywood video and being like oh my god this gay movie from the UK get real and Mm. then I would like rent it but I'm like who's gonna see me renting this you know yeah no absolutely like the experience of like foraging yeah just like i remember there was some video store in like dormont right uh that had like bootleg vhs copies of like the earliest john waters movies uh i think it was called incredibly strange it was definitely famous amongst the uh the video trading underground i think those guys are still out there somewhere that'd be amazing and, and that's the thing, like, you know, like you just through word of mouth start to yep. hear about like, oh, well, you know, such and such video store, they get all that stuff. And you're like, right, really? And then you have to like talk your mom into driving you fucking 45 minutes uh, to, you know, go find this video store. And then you're just like scouring the shelves looking for it. And then, you know, you wind up walking away with like 10 titles you want to rent. And you're like, yes, I can watch them in two days. Just let me do it. <laughs> uh, it's so true. I had definitely had that exact same experience. Uh, now, you mentioned Kent State. Uh, so I can reveal to listeners that Jason and I actually met while we were in college in Ohio at Kent State University. Yeah. Very close to 20 years ago. Can you fucking, but ni- 19 years ago, right? I, oh my God. Uh, it's shocking. Ugh. Uh, but we actually first crossed paths in an organization, the I- IFS, the, uh, in, I always fuck it up now these days. It was the, uh, International Film Society. Yes. Yes. And, um, we were both officers of that. We sure were. And what was great about that experience and meeting you through that is we met literally because of a passion of film. Yeah. And uh, it was sort of our duty uh, at on campus to find movies through distributors to screen on campus. And Jason and I frequently would try and show weird stuff to students and occasionally would get blocked by people who still wanted tickets to be sold. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I feel like during that era, I discovered so much yeah. uh, that led and informed uh, my taste in movies later. Because mm-hmm. you just read a catalog and you'd be like, what's this international film? And why is there a picture of a woman walking out of a giant clay vagina? I must say. Right. Go on. I'm listening. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, that was that was such a funny... Everything about that was hilarious. Uh, you know, there was definitely a colorful cast of characters uh, that we were dealing with, some of whom... We're not even students at Kent. Yes, uh, yeah. We're just townies who are well twice our age. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even the name of the IFS was like nonsensical. Right. Uh, because it was not about international films necessarily. It was just like, it, it was basically just art house film club or cult and art house. That yeah. was kind of like what we were programming. And, you know, and we were, we were, you know, quite literally getting funding from the, from the school to be able to pay to have film prints shipped to us so that we could play them at the student center. 
Uh, and, uh, and it was a wild, it was a wild thing, uh, that, you know, it's, I, I still kind of haven't fully processed like that we were doing that for all that time. Right. Cause it was just so like, it was all just so analog in a way. It was. And I, re- when I think about that era, how unchecked we were so frequently, yeah. I remember we had a little office in the student center that was always packed with posters and like yeah. sometimes film, film reels that some officer of yesteryear forgot to send back in the distributor never bothered to check on Mm -hmm. um but what a great way to connect with people who love what you do right i remember we met uh then um and it's so funny because uh you were working at the Kent Stater, uh, and you also, I, I, Jason was always very open about his love for Julianne Moore, even then. I remember that being points of discussion and meetings. Mm-hmm. Well, I think I think we did SAFE one year uh, for the lineup uh, for the IFS. Yes, I think I one calendar year, yeah, we did a print of SAFE. Uh, and it was a great intersection, and it was like a great way to meet you. But what's funny is we could have graduated, and our paths could have diverged from there, mm-hmm. and I may have never seen you again. Yeah. But then we had a mutual reunion point in San Francisco. Uh, so let's let's kind of dig into the journey to San Francisco because I think San Francisco is a very different chapter of your life than Ohio. It is. And uh, you have lived many lives in San Francisco. I have. Uh, so talk to me a little bit about the decision to move to San Francisco after, because you had been writing about pop culture and film mm-hmm. uh, in college for the newspaper paper obviously the next step is going to be to try and find a publication somewhere in the world or Mm. or a gig in that space right why san francisco why then and i am interested to discuss your very first job in san francisco if you'd like to sure uh well i was going to go back to the ifs for one thing which then also would tie into sort of what led me going to san francisco but uh, one of our biggest controversies that we had uh, while we were doing ifs was when we programmed the film Jesus Christ Vampire Hunter. Uh, Easter weekend, we'll never forget it. We had protesters. Yeah, we had protesters, and uh, and it was yeah, it was a it was a thing that just caught on uh, as this sort of controversy with a variety of the uh, Christian student groups on right. campus. And what was funny about that was that I at the time was a student leader with one said Christian fellowship group. Oh yes, I remember this called Late Night. Uh, and late night was like the cool Christian fellowship. Like we were the more like politically progressive ones, but we weren't cool with gay stuff and neither was I at the time. Uh, and so even though I had been out in high school, um, I became a born again Christian when I was 17. And then from 17 to 23, I was like a full on like self-loathing evangelical that was like going to like ex gay meetings and all that shit. And so I like sort of threw myself in the middle of this dispute uh, between the IFS and the gay and the Christian student groups uh, where I was like, listen, like I am I am Christian and I don't think that we need to protest this. Like I've seen the film. It is it is it is gentle. It is not it is not like anti Jesus. It depicts him as a vampire hunter. Right. And he's got like a luchador friend. Oh, yeah. It's got a multicultural theme. It does. I'm like, this is I'm like, I genuinely don't think (laughs) that Jesus would be offended by this movie. Right. Um, um, and but I think that kind of what I started to realize uh, in this we see this a lot with sort of like right wing activism uh, in general is that like, they basically found an opportunity to feel like they were being legitimately offended and they needed to just dig their heels in about that and right. be like we are offended it's we're saying it on principle and we're not budging. And um, and we even I believe we worked out an agreement with them where we would read a statement before each screening of the film that Easter weekend, yeah. uh, in which we said that uh, this story does not depict the historical or biblical Jesus. Uh, and if you would like that story, there are people outside who are happy to tell it to you. Yeah, I remember I was uh, very much on the opposite end of the argument, because of course, coming from the uh, midnight movie like world and a celebration of that that I did. Mm-hmm. The second someone was like, we want to protest this, I was like, we're going to get great ticket sales. Exactly. And then I also was the one when uh, there was the discussion that I really dug my heels in and I was like, this is censorship and the second that you tell me that we can't show it, that means I really, really want to show it. Mm-hmm. And it was sort of like, fuck all y'all. Right. And I remember there were, I, I probably was a little too hardcore on the other side, uh, which um, I think was a learning experience for us all. Mm-hmm. Uh but yeah, I, I do remember that, and I, I sort of do recall you kind of being an intermediary for it, uh, and that is sort of like a whole journey of identity that you went on. Um, do you care to speak to that at all? Or Sure, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, it was just kind of, it happened very organically, 
And, uh, and then, yeah, for whatever reason, I just, yeah, went through all those years of my life. Like I <laughs> threw college away, guys, let me tell you. Um, uh, just in the sense that I was not doing any of the fun college things that one associates with college. Mm-hmm. I was like just doing Bible studies and, uh, and <laughs> that's pretty much the extent of it. Uh, and God, t- I must have seemed like a Satanist to you at the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I still also worked with student media and, uh, yeah. you know, heathens don't come any more aggressive than journalists. So there's that. True. Um, but uh, but yeah, then around the end of college, so yeah, I did. It took me five years to do my undergrad. I had the victory lap year, and it was my fifth year where where the wheels came off, and uh, and essentially that year it just got to be too much for me. Like the tension uh, of sort of like these dueling identities within me, I started to realize that it was like just me right like i would you know be talking to my fellow christians and just you know they would be asking about my struggles and i'd be like well yeah you know i just feel like i'm being literally torn apart but like you guys get that like we all have our temptations and they're like "Mm." and i'm like well no i mean like you know like that we all feel that way right like sin makes you feel like you're being torn into two different people and they're like uh and they're like no no i don't i can't i can't say that i relate to that exactly and i'm like well let's just pray about it then (laughs) um and uh, so, yeah, I just hit a breaking point that last year and um, and just started to uh, I just started to just reconnect with my sort of like identity as a, as a gay man. And uh, then I was still living in a Christian community house off campus at the time. Right. And um, and so then I just started to go out to like parties with the journalists and I started to like drink for the first time and, you know, start to like tentatively touch boys butts. And uh, and then eventually the word got back to my house directors who uh, sat me down and confronted me and asked if it was true. I said, yes. Uh, They said, "Okay, well, we'll need to work out a punishment for you then. And you'll need to confess to the house what you've done. And uh, and I was like, I don't know that I will accept that. And they just kind of stared at me like, what are you talking about? Because I've been in the house for three years. I was like a leader. They're, They're like, you know, the score. Why are you why are you doing? And I'm just like. I don't know, guys. Like, I just suddenly I just perform Let It Go in front of them. Um, like, something has changed within me. <laughs> um, and um, so, uh, yeah. And then I was like, yeah, well, just to be clear, like, if I don't accept this punishment, can I remain in the house? And they're like, no. And so I was thrown out of the house uh, with about a month to go before I finished school. Right. And, um, and so I moved in with a friend from Nipic, the Kent Neopagan Coalition. To talk about a turnaround. <laughs> a real turnaround. <laughs> and hilariously enough, I had been aggressively evangelizing her for the last like three years. Uh, and then she wound up being there for me whenever my Christian community threw me out of my house. That's a good friend. Uh, so, uh, and then I just very, you know, when you backslide, sometimes you backslide real quick and real hard. Uh, so I went from like living in a Christian house, living in San Francisco within like two months. Right. I, this, I, I remember when all of this happened. Yeah. Uh, and it must have felt very scary but freeing all at once yes i mean it was it was a very there was it was something that would just came loose right. and then it was just uncontrollable right uh and and uh so i just had to go with it and i so i relocated san francisco with my friend Lindsay, uh who uh had moved out there like two months earlier so i just went there and moved in with her and then uh and then to continue the backslide as you alluded to earlier, uh, one of my very first jobs in San Francisco was at the Knob Hill Adult Theater, which was San Francisco's only um, all-male strip club. And I was working there as a jizz mopper. Uh, the things you must have seen. Um, uh, and the, the things you must have mopped. I know. Uh, what I love about that is having known you in college and then just knowing that like it's sort of like the chains have come off and you were like, I'm a, I'm a live and I'm a experience. Right. And the idea of, uh, you know, going from pious Christian household to jizz mopper in span of a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it just, of I'm just so fascinated by that journey. Your twenties. Am I right? Yeah. Uh, God, I mean, it just really feels like a claiming of your reclaiming of your own identity. Yes, yes. Jizz mopping was all about reclaiming my identity. Well, that, uh, you, know what, you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, I mean, it was, it was just, yeah, it was just kind of like I had been forcing myself 
um, so hard and so unforgivingly into one corner of existence for so long. Right. And I had been aggressively like bottling up so much of myself right. uh, that, yeah, when it came uncorked, there was just nothing that could be done. It was like a dam breaking. And, and then I just had to just stand back and let every last drop, <laughs> <laughs> uh, quite literally, uh, pass by. So, uh, yeah, that was that was that was a moment that really reshaped who I was in a really profound way. And I assume at the same time you start really investigating the queer scene of San Francisco, Mm -hmm. which of that era was was I still think very punk rock and avant garde. It still is. But in corners, there has been a shift in the city. But that must have been like a real revelatory experience as well, coming from. Ohio, right? Uh, where we had like nary a drag queen for thousands, you know, like thousands of miles. It felt like I mean mm-hmm. they they were there, but they were few and far between. Yes, and uh, to jizz mopping uh, and seeing people like Heclina and Peaches Christ. Right. Well, let me ask this is uh, a general question. So, season one drag race, Akasha, she was from Cleveland, right? Yes, I think so. Yeah, and I thought, like, when she first, when I first saw her on Drag Race, I thought she looked like somebody who may have, I, who may have performed at the Rat Skeller at some point, which was the student uh, center at Kent State. I had seen Akasha perform at uh, Bounce in Cleveland. Mm-hmm. Okay, because I used to go on Saturday nights. Right. Yeah. Oh, Bounce, Bounce and Twist, right? Right on the corner. Bounce and yeah. Twist, and on the rare occasion, the Interbelt the Nightclub in Akron. The Interbelt was my first, like, when I first started to like tentatively tiptoe back into you know sort of identifying as a gay man I would like do drive-bys at the Interbelt where I would just like kind of like pull up the parking lot and then just kind of sit there and look at it be like dare I go in uh so yeah the Interbelt holds a very special place (laughs) in my journey uh but yeah like moving to San Francisco I mean obviously there was a lot of culture shock I never lived in a city before um I had never been it was also the beginning of my life as like an adult outside of school on my own right um and but in terms of like you know the queer experience and queer expression like yeah I can remember my friend Carissa taking me to the stud for the first time that was my first like gay bar in San Francisco and as of uh this taping just yesterday it was announced that they have renewed their lease for another two years Uh, so hallelujah the stud will remain with us for at least two more years a true historic landmark truly 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 uh, and, uh, but I think that, uh, and that was also where I wound up meeting my now husband, Scott, uh, at Tranny Shack uh, on Halloween, 2006, uh, being co-hosted by Peaches Christ and Heclina. And, uh, and I, and I had been to a few Tranny Shacks and, uh, as well as a few of Peaches midnight mass shows at the bridge. And, um, and what's funny is, yeah, so seeing all these things, I was just kind of like, okay, this is like, this is awesome. This is definitely like very different than any experience of drag I've had before this, which is basically just like what I've seen in like two Wong Fu. Right. Um, so, um, and it just like, it just felt right. I'm like, okay, this is cool. This is edgy. This is progressive. This is subversive. It's, you know, I, I, this is awesome. Fantastic. Also, I was drunk every time. So, (laughs) so everything seemed great. Sure. Um, so when you see Heclina without the booze, it's a whole different experience. Uh, but, uh, (laughs) so. Uh, so it was uh, and then what was funny about that whole thing was it was like setting the groundwork for so much of what I do now and then you and you got to it long before me despite the fact that you weren't in San Francisco yet no that's true I uh, had been I had met Peaches I think in 2006 while I was still in the Pittsburgh area and um, and we talk all about this in the episode with Peaches Christ so after you're done please listen mm-hmm. Uh and I had started doing some writing for her webpage, and uh, when she made All About Evil, we went on the road together, and she became one of my dear friends. Uh, and it was funny, because I remember coming to San Francisco for the first time, and uh, I must have posted about it on Facebook or something, and you were like, hey, I live here. Right. Uh, can we meet up for drinks? And again, that's a, l- truly the idea that we could have left college and never seen each other again. Mm-hmm. And... I remember I was in town and I was like, yeah, I'm working with Peaches Christ. And uh, then from that point on, when I would return to San Francisco or I'd be up there doing shows or whatever, we would keep seeing each other. And then you became involved in the world. You're part of the 
the greater Christ family. Yeah. No, I mean, it was it was the wildest thing because, yeah, so I, I was watching, you know, you become increasingly active with Peaches and, you know, doing like the whole like road show with All About Evil and her film and all the rest of it. And, you know, and it, and it just never even occurred to me that I, too, could become involved with Peaches Christ, despite the fact that I lived in San Francisco, her home right. base, and you were making it work from fucking Pittsburgh. Right. Um, so I was like, and then eventually um, how Peaches and I sort of became officially kind of tied uh, was I was approached about writing a chapter for a book in the World Film Location series about San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was asked to write a chapter about from a queer perspective. They're like wide open, something about queer angles, not Harvey Milk. Right. I'm like, okay. Um, and I was talking to Scott about it and he actually is the one who suggested, he was like, what about like midnight mass? Um, and I'm like, well, that's perfect because that is something that like, you know, like that's like a local queer perspective on film. Like it's such a thing that as peaches will talk about day and night only really it lives in San Francisco. Like it's such a profoundly San Francisco thing. And with its, you know, it's history going back to the cockettes and, uh, you know, like it's, it's, it's just, it's the real San Francisco treat. And, uh, and so I emailed Peaches and was like, hey, you know, uh, would you be open to sitting down with me for an interview for this book? And in a shocking turn of events, a drag queen said yes to publicity. And, <laughs> uh, and so Peaches and I, yeah, we met up and we had like sort of an initial getting to know you meeting that lasted for like three hours. Um, and, um, and then we just realized that like, yeah, we were similar people. We have a lot of same references. We have a lot in common. And in that moment, I also just basically threw myself at her feet and was like, I want to work for you because it's taken me a long time. But I finally figured out that, like, you're the only person in San Francisco who's doing anything that even remotely interests me. Right. Um, you know, like you are operating at the intersection of, of you know, queerness and film. And like, that's also where I live. So we're neighbors. So let's start working together. Right. And um, and so she was like, well, here's the thing. When people offer that to me, I do accept it. She does. Uh, it's true. And uh, and then she promptly put me in touch uh, with her people. And then eventually <laughs> there were a few misbegotten shows where I was working like the actual like tech crew. And boy, was I just in the way. Uh, so uh, but then eventually I found my my sort of speed uh, just writing press releases to support her shows, interviewing her visiting Rue Girls once she got into the Rue Girl chapter. Uh, and then, uh, and also doing like will call and shit. And this eventually led to me making my stage debut. Yeah. You recently made your stage debut after all of these years of working with the lady Christ, uh, in mean gays, mean gays, which is a parody of mean girls, uh, with Willem and Kim Chi and Laganja Estrangian of peaches, of course. Uh, and you play the role of Damien. I do. Tell me about this, like working behind the scenes for so long. I've been on that stage. I know what it's like. It's mm-hmm. all, it's a rush, yeah. but, uh, just that journey. Like, I mean, what's it feel like to finally be in a peaches show? I mean, well, first off, uh, I was talking with some of my friends who do Will Call uh, at front of house the, on the day of our San Francisco premiere, which was about two weeks ago as we're taping this. Mm-hmm. And um, and they were like, you made the leap. <laughs> you yep. made the leap from, from front of house to the stage. And they're like, very few make that leap. And, uh, and they're like, what's funny is we always can tell who starts volunteering with us because they specifically want to make that leap right and we're like we're we like watch out for it right um i'm like oh i had no idea oh my god it's like they are crystal and you're nomi and they're watching (laughs) you trying to come down the stairs (laughs) they absolutely are and but they but they have seen showgirl so they know to be like watching yeah they're they're walking down backwards down the stairs watching me to make sure that they can't get the jump on them exactly um and it never even occurred to me um but like i've always been obsessed with acting like actors my are my favorite part of film and tv i love just watching them and feeling what they feel and uh and so and just even reading actors talking pretentiously about their craft i eat it up can't right. get enough and uh so and i've always been kind of performery and uh but mainly i've kept it to like karaoke stages right and uh so it was just at the beginning of january this year we were having our um delayed peaches christ productions holiday party and uh and then our friend rory davis the choreographer for peaches shows uh comes up to me and is like I got something big coming your way tonight. I'm just like, Rory. <laughs> I never thought, oh, what? No, no what, 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 are we t- what are we talking about? And, um, oh, and, um, and then he was like, oh, you'll see. And, uh, and then like a moment later, like Peaches comes over and is like, hi, how are you? How was your holiday? And I'm like, oh, yeah, it's great. How's yours? He's like, fine. So would you be interested in playing Damien and Mean Gaze? 
And I was gobsmacked because I had been wanting that for so long. It was my like, put me in the show, right. Ricky moment. It was like, that was, and I had never, I never want Peaches to feel like I like need things from her or asking, thing, asking for things from her. I never want to be an imposition. Right. And so I never wanted to like literally beg to be put in a show. But like, I always, always, always wanted it. And, um, and so I'm just like sputtering and being like, yeah, yeah, I mean, I think I could probably do that. And then I said like, yeah, I'm like, then I, I did say out loud in the moment, I've been waiting for this for a long time. And, um, and Peach is just like staring at me. She's like, I didn't know you even wanted to perform. And I'm like, I can visualize this yeah. entire exchange, knowing both of you. <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, I was like, I was like, yeah, well, I mean, like, I, I don't really have experience, but I'm, I'm happy to like read for you if you want to. And, and, and she was like, no, 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 I don't care. Uh, read. For I know. I want to be a professional. So uh, and she's like, no, you don't need. No, I, I don't. It doesn't actually matter that much. I'm like, OK. And Do you think uh, Hecklina has ever read. For <laughs> oh, no, she can read. And, <laughs> and then um, and then uh, and then she called over um, her design girls, Carrie and Amy. And uh, and uh, was like, this is our Damien. And then they both just looked me up and down and went, yeah, it looks right. And, how, this is how it works. <laughs> and I was just like, and the funny thing also is that they never actually like even fit me. Um, and then I showed up and I was like, guys, you never did my fittings. Like my clothes aren't going to fit. And the clothes fit like a fucking glove. I'm yeah. like, oh, oh, you, you do this for a, this is what you do. Yeah. Actual costume uh, and wardrobe people are wizards. It's remarkable. I've been on many sets and I've, you know, done shows with, with many drag queens as well, where they'll look at you and they'll be like. Uh, size nine, eleven, and women's, and you're gonna wear this, 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 right. this. And I'm like, um, <laughs> and then they just put clothes on you, and it f- it's perfect. It's remarkable. Yeah. It was, yeah, sorcery. Uh, although I also, they, when they looked me up and down, we're like, oh yeah, you look like a Damien. I was like, am I offended? I think am I offended? Damien and, is an icon, and that's all you need. I know, yeah. I know. And they're like, well, no, no, you you look sweet. <laughs> that was what I got. There you go. I look sweet. Uh, and I love that not only did you get to make your Peaches debut uh, in Mean Gays in San Francisco, but now you are actually here in Los Angeles because you were doing the Los Angeles show. So you're technically a touring performer. I am. It finally happened. It came true. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love that our paths intersected in college uh, through international films and then came back around with Peaches Christ uh, because what two great ways to really keep a friendship maintained um i do want to talk before we head off into the night about the binge because it's such a big part of your life right this uh, because your byline has appeared in many places you've written for different publications before the binge you were working at spinning platters yeah and it was from there that you decided to create the binge right yes uh well the funny thing was so yeah i had been the film editor at uh, spinning platters which is like a bay area music and movie website and that was kind of what really gave me my start in terms of getting like accredited and uh, getting into the film critic circle and all that stuff. And the thing that inspired me to um, start the binge was I had an interview that I did with Rashida Jones for her movie, Celeste and Jesse forever. Right. Um, And in the, in the, in the span of said interview, um, I brought up something. It was also, and she was there with Will McCormick, who's her writing producing partner. Uh, And I brought up Frank Ocean because at the time she'd been tweeting about him a lot. And so I was just kind of like, oh, how's your Frank Ocean obsession going? And she's like, going strong, going strong. And um, and then I think Will then said something about like, oh, it's so awesome that like I wish, you know, more people would come out uh, because, you know, like the subject of, of Frank's queerness was like very huge at the time. And um, and he's like, yeah, like it'd be so awesome like that if like more like athletes, you know, would just come out. And she's like, yeah, or movie stars. And she's like, like John Travolta, like, what are we waiting for? How many masseurs have to come forward? Let's right. go. And so I was like, oh, that's funny. And so I included that, like, in the transcript, of course, of the interview that I posted. And then it kind of became a huge, like, week-long media shitstorm. Because uh, Rashida Jones is calling out John Travolta. Yes. Um, and that was around the time that many masseurs were coming forward about John Travolta. Right. And, um, and so then it was being reported like on like CNN, uh, that like Rashida Jones urged John Travolta to come out. Did you ever hear back from her camp about that? No. Well, I sent a note through Sony Pictures Classics, which was handling the film just to basically apologize to her, um, that like this had happened as a result of my interview. Um, but what I found was funny uh, was people were unsympathetic because they were like, well, did she say it? I'm like, well, yeah, she said it. And they're like, well, then it's on her. Right. Uh, like, I felt very because I was like, I have nothing but respect for her. Right. Um, and I was now responsible for her having her like 
probably her first ever like press headache. Yeah. Because like Rashida Jones keeps her nose pretty clean. Right. Um, and uh, so, but then the, so long and the short of it, yeah, so I never heard back from her. Um, and then she actually was responsible for the story lasting even longer because then she apologized on Twitter and then it really blew up. Right. Um, so, but, uh, but yeah, so at that time, what was funny was all of the coverage of it was pointing back to spinning platters and they, and, and spinning platter and like all that you could just feel the, the cumulative head scratching of all these journalists, like reading the description of spinning platters. They're like, okay, this is a self-described music and movie website for Bay Area nerds. Right. There, so there was just this general sense of like, what even is this? And then I had a lot of people in my life who were like working more professionally in media being like, this is your fucking moment. You need to spin off and start your own thing. Right. Um, because like it is, it is embarrassing. All this traffic is being lost on spinning platters and also just like how kind of what the website looks like. And yeah, you just need to like take this moment to start your own thing. Right. And so that was actually Rashida Jones misfortune was my windfall. And so that's what inspired me to start the binge. Uh, and uh, that's how that got going. Uh, and then you did the binge. Uh, it, it, you started it as like a, a website blog uh, article based what you do. Yeah. And what, about three years before the podcast happens? Yeah, about that. Yeah, about that. Uh, and uh, and then, yeah, then the podcast started up just because my my now co-host, Rebecca Olarte, um, came to me and she proposed that we start a podcast. I did not listen to podcasts. Mm-hmm. I had always had a vague disdain for them. Totally irrational. Right. Uh, it just seemed like there's some sort of like techie thing. And despite living in San Francisco and actually working in tech, I have great disdain for it. So uh, that was, I was just not interested. Uh, and then she was just like, well, let's just try it. And so we started trying. And I was like, oh, it's so easy to just sit and talk about this instead of having to fucking write down shit. Right. Um, and, uh, and so it was really the laziness of it all that appealed to me. Uh, and, uh, and so that was, and then we started doing, and also, People had always said that like my writing the most when they could like hear my voice in it. Right. I'm like, well, why not just cut out the middleman and give you my voice? Uh, and one of the things that has come out of the binge, and I think now back on that kid in 1992 who got that first Entertainment Weekly right. and obsessed with the idea of Nick Nolte, Nick Nolte, and celebrity interviews and mm-hmm. movie reporting. You now uh, are quite regular on the press junket circuit, and you have sat with many, many movie stars mm-hmm. and talked to them about recent projects and things. And it must part of you; it still feel very wild mm-hmm. from PA. Oh, absolutely! To sitting across from Jason Bateman, right. or you know, uh, do you have any like specific? interviews other than Rashida Jones of course that really really stick out or someone that you were just like I can't believe I'm here right now absolutely uh so some years back Glenn Close uh was doing the rounds in her uh up to this year most recent failed awards attempt right uh Albert Knobs oh yeah a drag movie a drag movie yes um and uh and so she was really I mean when Glenn wants an award she will do all the regional tours and so she came to Mill Valley the mm-hmm. Mill Valley Film Festival which is kind of a, a generally slept on but surprisingly a list film festival we have in the Bay Area um like it comes kind of at the end of a uh, festival season it comes after TIFF right um and but it gets like all the major TIFF movies it gets a list actors it's really remarkable um and so and Glenn was open to doing press while she was there. And so I was like, well, yeah, of course. And so like, cool, we'll put you in this round table with Glenn and some other like online reporters. And I'm like, great. So I start working on like, you know, a handful of questions you get used to when you're doing like the online round table thing, you know, you're going to get maybe like two questions in tops. Right. And you'll just have to like try to shape this weird Frankenstein conversation together into some sort of narrative. Um, so, and I had watched the movie probably two or three months prior to this interview. So it was not fresh in my mind and I did not care for it. Uh, so I show up to the hotel and, uh, and then the publicist is waiting and they're like, Hey, oh, so just FYI, it's actually just gonna be a one-on-one because everyone else dropped out. (laughs) Who drops out of an interview with Glenn Close? I don't fucking know. I still can't believe it to this day. And so I like blanch, uh, like I feel like my entire body go cold and I'm like, well, when, when do I, when, when, uh, you know, how much time? And they're like, oh yeah. They're like, no, she's like waiting. Like, okay. <laughs> and so I just like walk into this room and there she is resplendent in a cream pantsuit. And, uh, and then I just kind of like pop down and I'm like, okay. 
uh, I can make this work. I think they were like, okay, you have like 15 minutes. I'm like, great, great. I'm like, I can, I can do this. I can do this. And so I, you know, I, I start my very first question. I'm like, so how did, and then she's like, did you see the film? Like, yeah, I, I, I did. She's like, and what did you think of it? So she's interviewing you. You're getting interviewed she by Glenn Close. Yeah. Immediately turns the tables and yeah, exactly, is interviewing me. And I'm like, and this has never happened before or since. Never before or since has the talent ever asked me. Like they don't give a fuck. So they don't care what I think about it. Right. But like for whatever reason, she just stopped the interview and just started her own. Yeah. And then she commenced to like interrogate me with my thoughts in the film. And as I just said, I had not seen it in months. Right. And I did not like it. And so I'm now put in this position where I have to like try to outact Glenn Close. Right. Uh, to like convince her that I actually was a fan of the film. Uh, and that I can remember every detail. Well, you know she's listening to this. So <laughs> Glenn, <laughs> you should have won for the wife. Uh, so it was excruciating. And also uh, I felt like I was interviewing for a job at her law firm on damages. Uh, which was which was chilling, um, right. but exhilarating at the same time. Uh, and then especially, and so, so yeah, so this goes on for probably like almost 10 minutes. And I am, I think, gradually making it clear that I don't remember much about the movie, but I'm trying to cover. And she's just batting me around like a cat with a toy. Uh, and then eventually, like, she's like, thank you for indulging me. Please go on. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, all right, let me see where was I. And then like the publicist comes in like two minutes later, and I'm just like, put me out of my misery. And um, and she's like, oh no, no, you know what? I actually interviewed him for a while, so no, he can have more time. It's fine. And I'm like, thank you. And then it lasted longer. Uh, and uh, I even I brought up damages to her, and because uh, I wanted to ask a question about like how it's been for her to play a character for so long. Right. As opposed to just having a feature film to give you that entire experience. And then she was like, oh, Patty, you know, she does her whole thing. And then she just kind of like shot me this Patty Hughes look. And I like tinkled. It was like, I thought I was like, I can't take any more of this, Glenn. Right. Please just release me. Uh, so uh, it was. And then I just tried talking to her about her Will and Grace episode and she didn't care. And that was pretty much a wrap. So, uh, yeah, I, well, it's it's on the Spinning Platters website to this day. And I, I made sure to transcribe every last like um and stutter that I had when she was interviewing me. So you can get the full experience of exactly how excruciating it was. Uh, I love everything about this story. <sighs> Even though, I mean, it's funny. It's one of those things where this will be funny later. Yes. And it right. is funny later. Yeah, it's like eight years later and I'm still like shaking. Uh, well, as we are about to wrap up, I always like to get ask guests, uh, what have you seen recently that you love or that inspires you? I know as someone who hosts a whole show about movies, you're you're mm-hmm. keeping up. So, Well, you would think so. Uh, <laughs> the funny thing uh, is that this, this whole year so far has been... Um, I haven't been home much. Right. I was on a drag cruise with Jesus Christ and Neglina. Right. Um, then I was in rehearsals for Mean Gaze. Which I want to like briefly just jump in. While yeah. you were on the drag cruise, you did drag for the first time? It was my first time doing a lip sync while in drag. And your drag name is? Jennifer Jason Leroy. Because? My name is Jason Leroy. <laughs> Gays love actresses. <laughs> and that too. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was my first time doing a lip sync um, in, in full drag. Uh, and uh, so that and that was a treat. But uh, but yeah no so I've actually been like missing pretty much everything right um, I have not seen I think the only theatrical release I've seen so far this year is literally the Lego Movie too um, but there's a lot that um, that I have saw at TIFF last year uh, that is just now coming out and so that's kind of the only stuff I can really speak to like for instance like both Greta and Climax just came out and right. those were both at TIFF last year and Climax technically is a horror film yes um, as is any Gaspar Noe film really. of course yeah. Um, I didn't actually love Climax. I know it's like getting such like, like this is moment. This is brain. It's so accessible. I'm like, are you are we watching the same movie? I haven't seen it yet, but I tend to always see his movies in the theater. So I will before it goes. Yeah. But, but there is a film that was one of my f- absolute favorites of TIFF um, last September that is finally now coming out and it will come. It'll be a full circle thing to bring up. Um, and that film is Gloria Bell starring Ms. Julianne Moore. 
Ah, I love it. Jesus, is it fucking amazing. Uh, it's, you know, directed by Sebastian Lilio, uh, who made A Fantastic Woman. And uh, and then it's actually like almost a shot for shot, word for word remake of his original film, Gloria, mm-hmm. uh, you know, which he uh, which he made uh, initially in Spanish some years back with Paulina Garcia, I believe, playing the title role. And uh, and now he uh, at Julianne's behest has remade it starring her. Uh, when Julianne wants something. Absolutely. I don't care what movie it is. If it's Skyscraper, you give her a remake of Skyscraper starring her in the Dwayne Johnson role. <laughs> Woodwatch. Woodwatch. Uh, so, you know, last question. We'll, add, we'll, we'll end on Julianne Moore. Mm. And because of the horror show of, of it all, what is Julianne Moore's best horror performance? Her best horror performance. Well, of course, there's Tales from the Dark Side. Oh, Good, good choice. There's Hannibal. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, let me see. What other horror films has she been in? In Benny and Dune, didn't she play an actress who was in a horror film? And she like shot like a horror film within the film. Yes, I think that's true. There's like, there like a slasher movie that they like put her in inside that movie. Uh, because I'm a person who also classifies any '90s thriller as horror or horror adjacent, uh-huh. my selection would be a hand, the hand that rocks the cradle. Oh, of course. What am I thinking? Uh, and there's, I mean, the Carrie remake, but I mean, not that. Uh, she's good in it. She is. She makes choices. Yeah, I'll say that she makes choices. She she does that that characteristic Julianne thing where she like underplays key moments where you want her to just go full tilt, and uh, and she's like, not yet. <laughs> no, no. Uh, it well, yeah, she made choices. She made choices. But uh, no, Hand the Rocks the Cradle is of course just beyond iconic. Um, and I think when I think of the way she played the scene in Hannibal, the, the sort of like the PhD resistance scene of, uh, of whenever Ray Liotta has his, you know, skull cap removed and she like staggers down drugged in that haze, but in that gorgeous dress that Hannibal put her in, like that entire scene is just like the reason to watch that film. Oh, it's so good. Um, I haven't seen, Han- I, I rewatched Hannibal about two years ago cause the last time I had seen it was in the theater mm-hmm. and, uh, Talk about a movie full of of choices. <laughs> but I think that she's a great Clarice. I just think it's tough to live in Jodie oh, yeah. Foster's shadow, no matter how you amazing yeah. an actor you are. No, it's like hosting the Oscars. It's a thankless job. So for the next film, you should just have no one play Clarice. And I think people would love it. Would watch, like Definitely would be into it. Yeah. Art house film. Double digit improvement in ratings. Yeah, where uh, Anthony Hopkins or Mads Mikkelsen, whoever, mm-hmm. plays Hannibal and just talks at nothing. That would be fantastic. And it somehow wins the Palme d'Or. Oh. <laughs> All right, let's speak it into existence. Jason, thank you so much for coming today and talking about your journey, your work, your debut as a mean gay. Thank you. Uh, you know, from from college to jizz mopping to international cinema to battles with Glenn Close <laughs> of, the, of wit. Uh, it's like my obituary is being read to me right now. I uh, I always just love knowing what you're up to, and I, I you know value your voice in the landscape of cinema so much. Well, thank you. So thank you for coming today. Uh, where can people find you? Uh, well, the Binge Movie Podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts, and uh, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at excess faggage. Oh, we loved a transgressive time. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Jason. Thank you, Michael, for having me. This has been a real treat. Oh. This has been Dead for Filth. I'm Michael Verratti. Yours always in glam and gore. Good night and good luck. Dead for Filth is a Reverie original podcast, executive produced by Aaliyah J. Daniels, LaShawn McGee, Chris Rodriguez, and Damian Pelliccione. The show is produced by Drew Phillips and sound engineered and edited by Josh Perkins. Download the Reverie app and use the code FILTH for 25% off your first three months. <laughs>